This morning's reading is from 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, and you'll find it on page 1,190 in the Church Bibles. Request for prayer. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured, just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have a right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Well, in our home group, we 
were unanimous in our agreement that the whole issue of the day of the Lord, the, the second coming, as it's called, is a very neglected theme in the church today, in this church. We're not here to criticize other churches. We're trying to put our own house in order. Indeed, the conclusion was this is the Cinderella doctrine of the church today. So we're staying a bit longer to think about this and its uh, impact and relevance in our lives. Let's try as best we can, and we're, we're looking at 2 Peter with the background of that reading that we had in 2 Thessalonians with Jill. We're thinking of the day of the Lord, but let's try to go back just a little. Come with me when Peter, in his day, was looking at the church. There he is, he's the pastor, it's a tough time in Rome, there's moral corruption, there's financial indiscretions, sounds familiar, doesn't it? All that sort of thing going on. But more than that, there is apostasy, scoffers, uh, creating doubts and confusion about our Lord's return, both within and outside the church, and at the same time, this pincer movement of a fearsome, horrible persecution unimaginable. This is uh, Salipicus Servus, the historian of his day, records this. Listen. In the meantime, the number of Christians being now very large, it happened that Rome was destroyed by fire while Nero was stationed at Antium. But the opinion of all cast the odium of causing the fire upon the emperor. And he was believed in this way to have sought the glory of building a new city. And in fact, Nero could not by any means he tried escape from the charge that the fire had been caused at his orders. He, Nero, therefore, turned the accusation against the Christians and the most cruel tortures were accordingly inflicted upon the innocent. Bear in mind, it was the Romans who brought crucifixion. This is what is recorded. Even new kinds of death were invented, so that, being covered by the skins of wild beasts, they perished, being devoured by dogs, while many were crucified or slain by fire. That, when the day came to a close, they would be consumed, that is, used as human torches to serve as a light during the night. Not a good time to be a Christian. In this way, cruelty first began to be manifested against the Christians. Afterwards, too, their religion was prohibited by laws which were enacted, and by edicts openly set forth, it was proclaimed unlawful to be a Christian. Now, that seems light years from us, and yet we have in our notice sheet today a pastor who has the death sentence over him for being a Christian. We must never say that will never happen here. So here's the church, outlawed, marginalized, pilloried, tortured, murdered. The future looks incredibly bleak. And here we are today reading this letter what has it got to say to us then? Well, in our last study two Sundays ago, uh, we concluded with this, and we take up the theme now, 
that the challenge of, of the Christian church is that once again we would be people in our praying and in our living and in our planning to cry Maranatha. I was talking to some folk, I hadn't even heard the word or what it means. Come, come Lord Jesus. There's a tendency, of course, to think about the second coming as something that's going to interrupt our plans, spoil our joy. We all have our individual comfort zones, and it's not wrong to have plans, to prepare for the future. And yet, as part of that, to take into reckoning that one day, for sure, our Lord will come. So the cry, Maranatha, as the New Testament comes to an end in, in the book of Revelation, is to be echoed again in our praying, in our planning, and indeed in our worshipping. So three observations about our Lord's coming as we uh, come closer to, uh, to Peter now. While some things are clear, much still remains a mystery. P.S. Don't speculate. A lot of true... Um, openness about our Lord's coming has withered on the vine of speculation as to who is the Antichrist. And indeed, that letter, did you notice, that's what, exactly what was happening there. People said, well, the Lord's coming. Why do I need to go to work? Let's sit around and wait. Well, somebody's got to buy the food. Somebody's got to pay the bills. And it was a distorted view of the Lord's coming, as Paul wrote in that uh, 2 Thessalonians 3. So, some things are clear, others remain a mystery. Secondly, when looking for answers, leave room for questions. By that I mean people who have got it all sewn up, I would say, have the balance of Scripture that there are some things that are open-ended. If you have a Jehovah Witness coming to your door, it's usually all sewn up. It has been twice before. And indeed, some unwise evangelicals in their predictions. Thirdly, no one has all the knowledge. I, I'm sure our Lord gives us that deliberately. We don't know the times and days. So, stand on what Scripture says, not on what it doesn't say. Don't reason from silence. Reason from Scripture. So, Let's come to 2 Peter. Let's just, um, with that reading in the background, 2 Peter um, and verse 8, for example. Just look at this. How do you put this into your calculations? Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. And actually, it's a quotation from Psalm 90, verse 4, where it says, not just a day, but a watch in the night. A third of a day. Putting that into the reckoning of our Lord's eternal being. It's a mystery. We live in time. The Lord, best way to illustrate this, doesn't have one of these. Doesn't have a watch. Doesn't need one. He's eternal. And I know it seems, and it is, okay, literally, light years away. But one day, when our earthly life is finished, we're going to understand, as now we can't, what it means to be outside of time. And it's a mystery. Don't speculate. 
He is eternal. But in the context of our daily lives, let's come back to where we are. What does it mean? That's a good question to ask. Look at verse 9. What does it mean? It means this. First of all, the Lord is not slow, but patient in his providence. I mean, it's a very humbling hymn to sing when you think of the torment of a troubled mind. The Lord is not slow, but patient in his providence. He does move in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. It's a lovely verse, isn't it? Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. There you are, look, those clouds of apprehension looming ahead, full of anxiety. And yet, they are big with blessing and shall break with even greater blessing upon you. He is not slow, but patient in his providence. Stay with verse 9, ask the question, what does it mean? It means he is not indifferent, but merciful in his salvation. Why do I say that? Well, look at the verse itself. Look, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some consider slowness. No. Look, there it is. He is patient with you. Why? Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Here is the door of grace wide open and we can walk in and receive forgiveness and grace and love and peace. And even in troubled minds and people who are, whose relationships are racked with anxiety, just like the hymn writer, there are moments when we discover that God is merciful. Why? So that and the reason that all people may come to repentance. Well, we're here this morning. Have you? Consciously? God is not indifferent, but merciful in his salvation. Let me ask you to do something with uh, this a teasing verse, verse 9. Just stay with it and do this exercise. Let's read it first, then it'll make more sense. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Those two words, not wanting anyone. Do you have friends, family, colleagues that you really value who are not, a, not believers? Here is the challenge. God is patient, not wanting anyone. Put somebody's name there. Use verse 9 like that. But everyone, anyone, everyone. Think of people you know who are not believers and for verse 9 using the anyone and everyone. Put their names in that place and use it as a prayer. And have a covenant with the Lord for a certain time. It's hard to sustain prayers for a long time. Do it for a week or a month. That would be a great exercise. And in doing that, you are actually saying, I believe in the Lord's coming. That the Lord's coming doesn't make me passive or redundant or say, I'm not interested in, 
in my pension. I'm not interested in buildings. I'm not interested in my health or my family. Of course I am. More so. The people who believe most in eternity do most now. When did you last really meet somebody who's so heavenly minded, no earthly use? For me, it's been a long time. We think so much of where we are here. But if we were more heavenly minded, we would be more earthly use. We'd bring heaven down into our homes, into our work, into our relationships. And sadly, often we don't. We think and behave just like unbelievers. So there it is. That's a great challenge. If nothing else comes out of this sermon, you do that and have a covenant with the Lord and see what happens. To pray, to engage, to talk. Let's just try to say something else um, here about the second coming, the day of the Lord. A distorted view of the Lord's coming creates indolence. You, if you were to... Let's just quickly go back to that reading that Jill had for us, 2 Thessalonians. Just read that again. I mean, Paul is pretty abrasive, isn't he? You may think, I'm fairly direct. There's nothing in contrast to what he says to the church. Don't, you know, if you can, don't be miffed by him if you are with me. Well, 2 Thessalonians. Let's have a look at this. See, look, what is he saying? Now, it's an interesting observation, isn't it? Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother, every believer who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you have received from us. For you yourselves know how we ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you. This has become, of course, in the course of time, the great Christian ethic, work ethic. Nor did we eat anyone's food without praying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, that we would not be a burden on any of you. Look at verse 11. We have some of you are idle. It's a bit much. And busy. No, busy bodies. Going into other people's lives. Such people we command to urge to settle down, to earn their bread and so on. It's pretty... Well, you, there it is. You can read that for yourself. So a distorted view it creates indolence, laziness. But a neglected view creates indifference. So what? So he's coming. Are we careless? That actually all that we're doing is living through this life, enjoying, having, accumulating as much as we can, and then leaving what it is to the next generation. However, a balanced view, as best we can, as we, as we live with this tension, is that we are informed and are at peace. Do you see what he says? It's an interesting uh, phrase there, isn't it? Look, look, look back again. There you have it in verse uh, 16. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, in every way. The Lord be with you. You see that? So if we come back to um, 2 Peter 3, um, now we'll stick to this as we try to apply this. Many of us have uh, heard of and people have benefited from the Shaftesbury Society. Let me give you a quote from Lord Shaftesbury. He introduced so many uh, beneficial reforms uh, in the social system, much of which are enjoyed by people today. 
in uh, the social structures. This is what he said. I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. Now, come on, if this shouldn't be a caricature, that if you believe in the Lord's return, somehow you're not interested in being involved in life with people, with commitment. Indeed, the complete opposite is the case. Those who believe most in our Lord's returning are the ones who do the most here, not the opposite. Christ's return actually is mentioned. I, you'd, uh, I don't know how you prove th these uh, statistics I'm giving you, but there you are. Prove me wrong and I'll be pleased. Um, mentioned on average 14, uh, once every 14 verses. So in every 14 verses, the Lord's return is mentioned once. That's, that's quite a lot. <laughs> now you think of the things that occupy the, the, the minds of the church. Our church. Let's not not general synod today when they're talking about bishops and stuff like that. That's easy, isn't it? That's out there. But think of ourselves. Who's setting our agendas in our living? It's, it's a high octave, isn't it? High frequency, high expectation. And yet somehow seems to have such low priority. I'd say two things as we... Uh, try to conclude here. The first is this, that believing God's word means that Christians should be holy. Let's come back to uh, the, the reading, uh, not the reading, uh, to 2 Peter 3, which is our series. You have it there in verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Question. What kind of people ought we to be? Answer, we ought to live holy and godly lives. Now, it's not terribly complicated, is it? Holy and godly lives. And verse 14, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found, what? Spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So believing in the Lord's coming does something to us. It isn't going to win arguments as to times and dates and all this arid introspection. But believing God's word means Christians should be distinctive. Now here's the thing. The process of being made holy, which the Bible calls sanctification is the work of God's Spirit in our lives when often we may say it's the conscience, but the conscience is, is heightened when God's Spirit is working within us. Say, you can't go on living like that. You really can't go on saying that. Do you know, really, you've got to stop doing that. And His fruit begins to be evident in our lives. Two things that help us here. Just think about this. The neglected doctrine of God's holiness. Living distinctive lives. The church seems to want to bend over backwards to be so like the world in every way. Stay in step with the world. Let's be user friendly. Let's not offend anyone. 
Well, the first is this. This process of refining, holy, being called sanctified, is, it's, it's, a, it's a progress. You should have a progress report. How are we getting on? See, instead of asking people, how are you, say, how are you doing? In this area here, here's the progression. How are we doing? Is the life of the, of, of the Holy Spirit flowing within us as we come in worship? as we go out into work, into the world, and so on. A good illustration of this, if you see at the back of the graveyard, we have a, a copper beech hedge. And throughout the whole winter, this harsh, biting cold, the frost and the snow and the gales, there those dead leaves hang on for dear life. If you shook them, they'd still hold on. Now, if they are an illustration of the sins that grip our lives that somehow we just can't shake them. How do they go? Well, in the spring, slowly, the life begins to come up through the stem into the branches right to the tips and they begin to fall away. And in place you have lush green shoots and leaves and colour and beauty. Now think of your life like that, the things that, 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 that grip you, that somehow you can't shake them. That's the life of the Spirit. That's what it is. And whatever that includes, whether it's a quiet thing or a demonstrative one, it's the life of the Spirit. That's the great need of every Christian. How are you doing? How are you doing? It's a progression. The trouble with progression is that we can have setbacks. But there's another thing that's linked to this word, uh, being holy, God changing us, if you like, is it's a progression, but it's also participation. That's the rub. You can't be made holy by going into a monastery and just sitting all day. You need people, abrasive people, people who don't like you and you may not like them, and you rub each other off. Hopefully you don't gossip and criticize them. Participation. Where do we get this from? Look, look again at verse, look at verse 17. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, I don't think I've told you anything you don't know already, but, but what is its implication in our lives? Since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but rather, what? Well, we grow in grace. We grow in grace in knowledge and likeness of our Lord and Saviour. This participation is not laid back Christianity. It's involvement in prayer. Maybe you should start taking up prayer again. I mean, when did you really? I mean, I know it's my job, and, and I know, but, but seriously, wh why have you given up on prayer? I mean, what, what reason is there? The day of the Lord... Maybe you just don't like the way prayer is orchestrated or organized or in your own home, even why you've given up, much less. So easy, isn't it? It's participation, involvement in prayer, involvement with people. People. The church is the greatest people industry in the world. It's about people. And all these other things are a means to that end. 
people, prayer, and a participation that may be costly. So, how are you doing is one question. Here's another question. Come on. How involved are you? How involved? When you're asked to do something within church, even though you're doing nothing else, what do you say? Or are you just looking on at the sidelines and, yes, easy, isn't it? Complain about others. But you see, the holiness, this change, this sanctifying process is a powerful thing. Makes me more like Jesus, less selfish. Believing God's word means Christians should be holy. You see it in the light of his coming. And lastly and finally, believing God's word means Christians should be patient. I don't mean a temperamental one. Some people are naturally more patient than others. Some people have a long fuse. Some people have a short fuse. We know that. don't mean that. Well, more than that. You see, the, it's this, the Lord is patient. Look at verse 9. Look at his he's saying. The Lord is not slow in, slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowest. He is patient with you. Well, if he's patient with you, you should be patient with others. Surely. And look at verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, reconciliation, healing, a coming together. That's what it means. Believing God's word means Christians should be patient. Patience means salvation, means changing, transformation. God is patiently waiting. Holman had captured that so beautifully. You'll see it in Keble College in Oxford. Here I am. I stand at the door, knock for anyone. Hear my voice. I'll open the door. I'll come to them. And they with me. It may be artistic license, but he sees the door there of the church or of a believer. Overcome with briar. Hasn't been opened for years. Close to Jesus. Jesus is a no-go area in my heart. Why should he be patient with us? Indeed, why? We least deserve it. But God is patiently waiting. But also, you see here, God is providentially saving. That's what he does. His patience means salvation. What a wonderful thing that is. But not only that, not only is God patiently waiting, not only providentially saving, but here is his purpose. He is preparing something glorious. I know it's used at funerals, but why not use it here? John 14, 1, 1 to 4. I go to prepare a place for you. Thomas won't have it. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Good disciple. He's asking what others are thinking. And you need that. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Preparing, preparing, waiting, saving. The day of the Lord will come. I don't know when, nor do you. The day of the Lord will come. And it is summed up in these four commands that are given here. The first, you see it there is in verse 11, clean up. As if he was coming today, what would you want to do? Since everything will be destroyed in this, what kind of people ought you to be? If you were really having important people come into your house, I'm not suggesting your house is a tip, but if you did, well, you'd want to clean it up, wouldn't you? You would. 
Well, clean it up. That's what he says. Pre- preparing for his coming. He may not come, but it's clean anyway. That's good. Should be like that all the time. Clean up. Then, secondly, look up. So much of us, we're looking around, looking at each other, looking down. Look up. You're a Christian. Christ is in glory. One day you'll meet him. Look up. And don't get embroiled in criticism. It is not of the Lord. And so in verse 12 here, you see, the day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward, looking upward. Speak up. The great John Stott, what a great man he was, lamented the church of which he loved and served all his life. Was recorded as being the hundredth most influential man of his century in the world and lamented the fact that his church had a guilty silence. Often it's not what we say, it's what we don't say, isn't it? We have a great gospel to proclaim. So in verse 13, in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to new heaven and new earth, the home of righteousness. What will it be like? It will be good. And lastly and finally, we have to grow up. Grow up. Can you remember your parents sometimes saying that to you and you were behaving in an inappropriate way? Grow up. I still remember my father saying to us, act your age. Grow up. He had a right expectation at a certain time. Well, we shouldn't behave like kids, should we? We should grow up. And so in verse 18, there it is. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the day of the Lord. It will come. We could hasten his coming by preparing. Let's pray together.